swing and a drive. Deep to left center field. Going, going. Goodbye, baseball. This is Extra Innings. Fastball swing and a miss. Strike three. That's going to retire the side. Seattle sports goes inside the Mariners with more stories, insights, and analysis than you'll find anywhere. Drilled up the middle. Oh, what a catch by J.P. Crawford. Step in the batter's box in the top of the tent right now. Hour number two of Mariners Extra Innings rolls on and joining me on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. He covers the Phillies for the Athletic. It's Matt Gelb. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Gelb, G-E-L-B, is how you can follow him. Matt, really appreciate you joining us on Extra Innings. How's it going today? Good. How are you? Doing well, doing well, and uh, the Phillies seem to be doing a lot better right now than they did uh, at least at the beginning part of April. They had a nice little stretch playing the Reds, the White Sox, and the Rockies. Now they get the Mariners this week. High expectations coming into this season for Philadelphia, obviously, coming off a National League pennant and and adding Trey Turner and, and just having that big offseason that they did, but getting off to the slow start, how is the fan base holding up after, uh, you know, some some hand wringing over the season's first couple of weeks. I think people are are generally encouraged. I mean, I think uh, look like it wasn't the start the Phillies wanted, and then, you know, and people got you know into the season. We're, we're we're so excited. It was a very anticipated Phillies season. Just you know, given how last year went, how surprising and unexpected it was. But uh, you know, I, I think there were some concerning spots early on, especially with the pitching. And there still are some weird things going on with the pitching. But um, I think everyone is fully aware. It's like, look, you're trying to keep this thing, you know, just afloat until Bryce Harper gets back, until um, you know some of the the more established hitters in the lineup heat up, until everything just sort of gets straightened out. I think what you've seen is that their starting pitchers have have gone deeper into games. It's allowed them to get their bullpen you know, a little more settled and situated, and the result has been uh, more consistent baseball. You bring up Bryce Harper's looming return, and that has been uh, kind of a cloud hanging over this Philly season. When will Bryce Harper return? When will he make his his, uh, valiant return to this Phillies lineup? And you wrote a couple days ago that it could be coming a lot sooner than we've anticipated. I mean, having Tommy John surgery just a few months ago, we've seen him take reps at first base in practice. How soon can we expect to see Harper back in this Phillies lineup? Soon. I mean, it's going to be sometime in May. Uh, it's uh, it could be as early as the first weekend in May. I mean, it, it, what he's doing is uh, it's remarkable. And you know, there's not a lot of precedent for you know a guy coming back strictly as a DH. Shohei Otani did it after Tommy John surgery, and he took he needed you know about seven months from the date of his surgery. And at this point, Harper now is trending towards uh, being back before the six month mark, which is just uh, it's it's staggering. I mean, I think it's really surprising. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's not going to go on a minor league rehab assignment. He's been taking a lot of at-bats against live pitching uh, at Citizens Bank Park. And it's been unusual, right, because he's doing this Tommy John rehab in front of everybody. Like, he didn't go to the complex in Florida. It's been very public. Uh, and that's unusual because most guys are recovering from that surgery or kind of isolated, and they're doing their work behind the scenes. Um, but Harper's is not, and you know Harper is a star of stars, and like you know, there's a lot of attention on him, and uh, not really sure what it's going to look like when he gets back. But you know, I think they they are optimistic that he can pull this off, and uh, they don't, they could really use him right now because um, he's Bryce Harper, yeah. <laughs> so he's going to be back 
you know, well before they expected. I mean, they had been conservative with the timeline. They said, you know, sometime by the All-Star break, and um, he's, he's probably going to beat that by two months. How will the Phillies kind of balance out that lineup once he returns? Because we've seen him take reps at first base. Obviously, he's going to probably play some DH too. But Kyle Schwarber's the DH. Alec Bohm has played first base for the most part to start this season. Uh, obviously, Reese Hoskins isn't going to factor into the Phillies' plans this year. He's out for the year. But uh, you've got Bohm and Schwarber who are, are you know locks in that lineup pretty much every single day. Uh, Edmundo Sosa has had a good start to the season. Where? Wh- how will they balance out this lineup once Harper returns? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do because Harper will be the DH when he comes back. He will not be the first baseman or play in the field at all, you know, I think for quite some time. I don't think it's, it's, it's going to, it's going to be a little bit, you know, he's coming back as a DH. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to have to have Castellanos and Schwarber in the corner outfield spots every day. I mean, cause they've been rotating the DH between those guys. Schwarber's gotten a lot of DH time, uh, and so when Harper comes back, he's a DH. He isn't playing anywhere else. Maybe he gets into the field, you know, maybe by August, you know, it, 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 because he's not really throwing much yet. Um, he's just going to be swinging. So um, it'll be interesting, you know, Bryson Stott, who hits left-handed. He's uh, was a rookie last year. He's at second base now. He's in batting leadoff. They really like him up there, but he's left-handed. And you have Schwarber who's left-handed. And you have Harper coming back who's left-handed. And they would like to break those guys up. So I do think it'll be interesting to see where Harper slots and then where Schwarber slots uh, because they'd like to have a righty between those two guys. Um, Trey Turner, obviously, is probably going to be hitting second for you. You really like Trey Turner, but maybe they do something like Thought, Turner, Harper, uh, you know, with uh, Castellanos hitting fourth and Schwarber hitting fifth. I mean, that's low for Schwarber, but um, they want to break up those lefties, so. Uh, they'll have some options, and really their younger hitters have taken some steps forward. They love what they've seen from Brandon Marsh and Alec Bohm and then Bryson Stott, too. So um, getting Harbor back would just make this uh, you know, a, a really potent lineup, I think. Matt Gelb of The Athletic, who covers the Phillies for them, joins us on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. You bring up that trio of Marsh, Bohm, and Stott, all guys who are, I believe, under 25 years old, 26 years old. They're young guys. Uh, How valuable was last year's playoff run to that trio? Because all three of them have come back this season and have looked considerably better with the bats. I mean, it was huge. I mean, you had guys who... You know, really, we're, we're learning about themselves during this run. I mean, Bohm is a perfect example. I mean, he, at the beginning of last year, had a had a very memorable three-error game at third base. He sat for a week, and there were a lot of questions about, you know, what what is this guy? What happens to this guy? And over the course of the year, as the Phillies sort of rose, he rose, too. I mean, he gained confidence in the field. He became better at the plate. And then all of a sudden, you look up, and he's starting third base in the World Series. And, and Marsh, you know, is a guy that got the trade deadline. He, uh, you know, Gets out of gets out of the Angels organization has you know makes some changes to his swing and then you know he's becoming this sort of cold hero in the postseason with the beard and you know big extra base hits and stop same way I mean he's a rookie playing shortstop in the World Series and that experience can only benefit you know younger players and I think they've come into this year just knowing their place and feeling more confident about where they are and um, you know I think the Phillies are, are uh, you know thought that all three guys could be solid everyday players. And I think what they're seeing now is that maybe maybe one or two of them are, are more than that. And, you know, it's been only three weeks or about a month, and it's been really encouraging. You know, Marsh especially, you know, he's on Major League Baseball and OPS right now, which, of course, is not going to stick for the whole season. But um, the initial uh, returns on all three of those young guys have been impressive, and it's really picked up the slack because, 
you know, they have gotten kind of inconsistent performances from Turner and Rio Muto and um, Schwarber guys, you know, who, you, you know, when at the end of the season, you're going to look up and they're going to have, they're going to have their numbers, but they've gotten off to slow starts and the younger guys have picked them up. What is the relationship like in, in the Phillies clubhouse between those young guys and then obviously the more established stars? Because, uh, I mean, Trey Turner, Bryce Harper, Kyle Schwarber, I mean, just to name a few, Nick Castellanos. I mean, these are guys that have played in huge games throughout their careers, uh, been to multiple World Series. Uh, you know, Schwarber won one with the Cubs. I mean, he's played in so many big games. What What is it like? Or do you see the young guys kind of picking the brains of, of those older players? Or how how is that dynamic? in the Phillies clubhouse. Oh yeah, I mean like Kyle Schwarber is uh is is really like the leader inside that room and he he is a guy who brings, you know, experienced players and younger players together and and it and it's really interesting to see him set the example where um he's kind of like a big brother to the younger players and that made them feel so much more comfortable last year, you know, when they were going through the ups and downs of the season and um it, it, it it's really a strong clubhouse. Uh you know, I, I think um they experienced what they experienced last year, and many of those same guys are back this year. And, you know, if you'll recall, I mean, last year they lost Bryce Harper for two months during the summer. He, he took a pitch off his hand. He broke his thumb. And and the Phillies really soared, you know, when Harper was down. And that was so surprising because um, in the past, is, you know, what's held this franchise back was a lack of depth, and they were unable to cover for injuries to their best players. And um, they did it last year. And I think a lot of those younger guys gained confidence during that time and um, it only increased, you know, once they got to the postseason. So um, it, it's a strong clubhouse, and I think a lot of that comes back to Kyle Shore, where he, he really is the guy who is uniting people in there and um, setting the example, and, and uh, you know, the younger guys uh, feel comfortable there. Uh, the Mariners, they avoid Zach Wheeler and Aranola this week, but they do face a familiar name in Taiwan Walker, who spent two stints in Seattle. Uh, what have the early returns been on, on Walker in Philadelphia? inconsistent, you know, probably a few more walks than, than he would like. They're asking him really to throw that splitter more uh, than he did last year, and it's a pitch that they really like. And he's, you know, still getting a feel for how to command it. Um, you know, he, he's a guy they signed to be a stabilizer in the middle of rotation. He got a lot of money uh, to fill that role, um, and they expect him to be that guy. But uh, he's gone six innings in each of his last two starts and are encouraged by that. Um, it was a little shaky at, at first, but um, he's making some adjustments just to the to, to the pitch mix. And uh, I, I know you're going to, you know, the minor hitters are going to see a, a lot of splitters. Uh, it's a pitch that still is really like, and, and Walker, uh, he's a believer in it. Matt Gelb of The Athletic joining me. And, and Matt, one last question for me, because in the city of Philadelphia over the last calendar year or so, they have gotten so close to winning so many titles, the World Series. Super Bowl, even the MLS Cup Final, too. I mean, does getting that close make the pitchforks come out a little bit more amongst Philadelphia fans, or is it just kind of like, oh, we're so close, we're so close, let's keep going? I think it depends on the person. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it's been it's been the last calendar year for, for Philadelphia sports fans has been, I think, really exciting. I mean, you you know, they especially on the baseball side. I mean, it, you know, the Phillies have been so bad for so long. It's been, you know, it was really the Phillies and the Mariners both had the two longest droughts in the sport. And the Mariners obviously much longer than the Phillies. But I mean, it had been a decade, you know, since the Phillies had been in the postseason. It just been too long. And people really, you know, had kind of forgotten about baseball. They didn't have a reason to come. And um, it was cool to see the city fall back in love with baseball. And the crowds at the ballpark have been great. 
Um, it's going to be a dollar dog night uh, the first game of the Phillies Mariners series, and it's probably going to be a big crowd. That that gets a lot of people out uh, <laughs> to see the Bank Park. But no, I think it's been bittersweet for a lot of people. I think the last calendar year is that you know so much potential and getting so close, especially the Eagles. You know, having the halftime lead Super Bowl and uh, bittersweet, but. You know what? I mean, it's better to be uh, captivated and entertained by your teams, and I think right now Philly sports fans have that. Matt Gelb of The Athletic covers the Phillies. You can follow him on Twitter, at Matt Gelb. Matt, really appreciate you hopping on. Enjoy the series and enjoy those dollar dogs. (laughs) Still to come in this hour, Kyle Glazer of Baseball America stops by at 8.30 p.m. to talk some prospects and also to talk about Jared Kelnick's start to the season. But up next, Jason Churchill, one of the best local voices in baseball. He joined Bump and Stacy earlier today to talk about this Mariners team through the first 22 games. Let's take a listen to that conversation. It's coming your way right after the break here on Mariners Extra Innings. Seattle Sports Station and the Mariners Radio Network. You're listening to Extra Innings inside the Mariners. On the home of the Mariners, Seattle Sports. We begin the evening in 3 of 3 down talking about Chris Flexion and how it just has not gone right for him to start the 2023 season. Now part of that uh, is just being thrust into the starting rotation when he was not planning on that to begin the year, but also he has plenty of starting experience with this Mariners team, making over 50 starts over the last couple seasons, leading the team in, in innings pitched back in the 2021 year. So what should the Mariners do with flex and spot in the rotation? Obviously, when Robbie Ray returns, that goes to him. But if that time frame for Ray's return turns into something a little bit longer, what do you do in that starting spot in the rotation Jason Churchill, prospect insider who does a great job covering baseball, covering the Mariners. He joined Bump and Stacey to talk about that, as well as a whole host of other things this Mariners team has going on for themselves after the first 22 games in the year. That's a rough spot. You're looking at 18 earned runs in his yeah. last three starts. Here, here's the thing, though. I think we know he's better than that. Okay, we, we don't think he's like one of the worst starters in Major League Baseball. He's on a bad run. He does get hit a lot. He doesn't miss a lot of bats. He's not a ground ball guy. There's really no formula formula there for Chris Flexen to go six every time out. He's going to have blowups. And even when he's going good, he'll throw the ball pretty well two, three times in a row. There's a little bit of a blowup. Maybe he gives up four and five and a third or something along those lines. They need to get him back on track. They're going to need him. I mean, guys get hurt. They're going to miss starts. You might want to skip someone at some point over the summer. You're going to need guys like Chris Flexen to go in and throw quality innings and He's just not commanding anything consistently right now. He always has the one or two uh, bad innings. And obviously, in this most recent start, you know, they had the double play. And then the very next, you know, and he gives up the home run. But that's Chris Flexen. It's contact. It's, he's pitching to contact. He can't miss bats. He doesn't have the big velocity. He doesn't have the out, the out pitch with the changeup or the curveball or the slider. He's got to be able to get defense behind him consistently and throw strikes and work from ahead. He just hasn't done that. But We've seen, you know, Marco Gonzalez and Chris Flexen are very, very similar in a lot of ways. Even though one's a righty and one's a lefty, they need to work in certain areas of the zone and, and try to get the hitter to expand. But when you don't have your best, like their margins for error is basically zero, and we're seeing that right now with, uh, with Chris Flexen. I would imagine Flexen gets another start, and depending on how well, you know, he, he does, how well that goes, um, may get another one. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure what the answer is here. You know, until Robbie Ray is back, and, and that seems like it's, you know, up to a month away, I'm not really sure what to do here. I don't think it's obvious that you go down to the minors and you pull up Taylor Dollard or Bryce Miller or Brian Wu or Emerson. Like, I don't think that's the answer 
at this point. I think it impedes the development of those arms. Those guys are not major league ready, in my opinion. And I don't think the Mariners believe that either. But they might not have a choice at some point. Chris Flexen has to throw the ball better. And we know he's capable of doing that. They need the good Chris Flexen to stand up the next couple of times through. Hey, Church, defensively, JP, these last couple of games have been awesome. And I look at him and I look at uh, how his body was made up of last year. He looks a bit thicker and stronger to me. Um, looks like he might be back on his, glow, his gold glove deal. Where would you compare him defensively to the best shortstops in the league at this point in the season? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've always put JP like in the top 10 or so, even when some of the defensive metrics don't back it up. Um, you know, because he's one of those guys that does it with volume. He's going to go out there and make, you know, few mistakes. He's not going to make a lot of mistakes. He's not necessarily going to make this spectacular play. He's going to make all the plays in between, and that's how he's valuable. That's why he's valuable. He had a, a really, really good year a couple of years back and, and gold, glove, gold glove caliber and, and, and all those things. But I just look at, at J.P. Crawford as a guy you can throw out there 150 times, and you're going to get really solid play. And at the end of the year, that's going to average – it's just going to come out and turn out to be a top 10 guy. I think he's top 10. I think sometimes he looks top five. Uh, it, but again, he's not that guy. He's not going to be Ozzy Smith. He's not going to be on Dalton Simmons. Uh, he's really not even Dansby Swanson at this point. He's just a guy who's going to make all the plays at shortstop that you need him to make and just hope he minimizes mistakes. He's kind of the efficiency shortstop in Major League Baseball these days. Talking with Jason Churchill right now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. And now I do want to get to DH because the Mariners had not a unique approach to the position, but um, but certainly a very particular one. What did you make of their approach to DH uh, and their plan for it this season? And uh, and what do you make of the position right now? Yeah, so I, I didn't mind the general approach. Get a couple of different guys that you want to rotate through there. You know, it, it really sounded to me like, they wanted to go get another bat that could play the outfield and then rotate Kelnick, Rodriguez, Teoscar Hernandez, and the fourth guy. And they just couldn't find that fourth guy. They couldn't find the guy that made sense for them or the trade that made sense. Uh, it does seem like they kind of sort of ran out of dollars there uh, to go out and use free agency for that. Or I thought Michael Conforto was the perfect answer for that. He ended up in San Francisco on, on a pretty short deal, two years and $36 million. But generally speaking, I, I like the idea. I like being able to leave that open for my lineup. Use Cal Raleigh there once in a while. Use Eugenio Suarez there once in a while. Use Ty France there once in a while. And kind of keep everybody fresh. But when you don't get the offense to throw out there in that position, you're not getting the offense from the guys that you've signed anyway, you're going to have a problem. And, and obviously coupled with you know another spot or two in the order, there have been times where the offense has struggled and everybody's looking to DH. But I keep telling everybody this. You're looking at DH, and the DH is really giving them very, very little. But if the Mariners decided, hey, we're just going to make Teoscar Hernandez the DH most of the time, now all of a sudden your problem's in right field. So it's not really the DH, you know, that position. It's not really the designated hitter that's the problem. It's just that you're a bat short. Where you play them is pretty much irrelevant, which actually helps them if they want to go out and find another bat on the trade market this summer. You just need a hitter. It really doesn't matter all that, that much where he plays in the field, if at all. What are your thoughts on Julio? Um, I think I'm thinking he's fine. Um, obviously, 0 for two last game, couple of walks, 0 for four of the game before. Um, but when you pay a man so much money, you're going to have fans saying, "Look, we need more out of him right now." Um, but I look at the slash line; I don't see too many things that are concerning. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I don't see anything concerning, and I, a lot of folks are pointing to his chase rates and, and things of that nature. But you know, he's a guy who does expand the zone a little bit. He did it last year, uh, depending on which 
uh, set of metrics you use. He was around 33, 33.5% in chase rate a year ago, and he's about 36% uh, this year. It's not that big of a difference. He can hit that pitch that's three, four inches off the plate, and he can hit it 400-plus feet, hit it out of the ballpark, hit it down the line, hit it in the gap. So I'm not really significantly worried. With, with Julio, sometimes I think he's a little too aggressive, and then sometimes I think he's not aggressive enough. And maybe right now he's just kind of stuck in between these first three weeks or so. But, you know, when you look at the overall body of work here, I try not to get caught up on batting average. He's hitting, what, about 245? If, if you're stuck in between and you're in a little bit of a down part of your season and you're 17% above league average, you're pretty darn good, and I'm not going to sit around worrying about you. I don't think about Julio Rodriguez at all until he hits one 110 miles an hour in the gap to score two runs. You know, I, I, just, I just don't. I don't think about you're like, hey, you're gonna I'm, not, I'm never, ever, ever going to worry about Julio Rodriguez on the baseball field. We're just not going to do it. Uh, very fair. We talked about a, a Colton Wong um, early last hour, specifically his exit velocity. He's last among all qualified batters at 83.6 miles per hour. Now, he's never been like exceptionally great there, but in pretty much every important category, he's down. When do you start worrying about a player? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough one, but it, here's the way I look at it with Wong. It, the one thing, like w- we kind of think with everybody else with a guy, you know, like Julio or Kelnick or with Ty France, like we're almost a month into the season, but for Colton Wong, we're really not. We're 65 plate appearances into the season. They're not playing him versus left-handed pitching. He had what, like three days off. I think this past week. Yeah. He played on the 18th, didn't play again until, uh, until the 22nd. It's not like he's playing every day and continues to struggle, scuffle every single day. So I want to get him into the 120 to 150 plate appearance range before I start to think this guy might be struggling so much and there might not be a way out of it in time. We might have to do something else. But here's the thing. You don't have Dylan Moore to go to at this point, and you might not for another month or so. Uh, I don't know how much you really want to play Sam Haggerty um, and, and overexpose him. But at some point, you might not have a choice. You, you might have to say, hey, all right, Haggerty's going to play. I mean, he's a switch hitter, better, you know, against lefties, better as a right-handed bat. But you go another, you know, three weeks or a month or so with Colton Wong getting another 60-plus plate appearances, mm-hmm. and he doesn't do something to tell you he still has it, you might have to start playing him even less than you already are. You can't always sit around and wait. I'm a small sample size guy. Everybody's like, oh, this guy's struggling. It's 65 plate appearances. I mentioned it in this very conversation. But at some point, you might have to start giving him fewer opportunities. It really kind of depends on how well is the team playing, how well is the rest of the offense going, are they getting more out of that D8 spot, you know, that sort of thing. And if you are and you're winning games, then you can tolerate it a little longer and give him, give him even more time. But he may become kind of a matchup player at some point. You get Dylan Moore back, Sam Haggerty's there. You know, I'm not sure if there's anybody in the minors you might call up. But instead of being kind of sort of an everyday player, except against, you know, tough lefties, he might turn into one of your bench guys. Second base may be one of those positions, kind of like the DH spot is now, where you just rotate guys in, depending on the matchup. Sometimes hand in this, sometimes pitcher type, sometimes you're riding the hot hand. But uh, for me, yeah, I, I think we got to go about another month and see what's going on with Cole okay. It doesn't seem to be anything physical. There seems to be bat speed there. Seems to be seeing the ball. Usually with a hitter like that, it's all about timing. That's that was a big thing with Jared Kelnick last year. His timing seems to be right. He's getting the front foot down. Maybe Colton Wong. Uh, is, he's probably studying that as we speak. He's probably like, how do I figure this out? He knows his swing better than anybody. But let's just, you know, another 20 games or so, let's get him 60-plus play here and see where he's at. 
All right. Like you mentioned, we're 12 games into the season, and we all think we have it figured out, right? It's DH. It's Wong. It's a pitcher that's struggling. Are we missing anything? Is it as simple as just, okay, getting better at those three areas, or do you think there's something else that can be done? Yeah, I think two things. They're both with the bullpen, actually. The bullpen hasn't been bad. They've walked far too many hitters, but they seem to be figuring that out a little better in the, uh, in the Cardinal series, certainly. Even with Andres Munoz back, I think they're, they're a high-leverage arm short. I think at some point during the season, they're going to have to find that from their system, which they might have in a, in a Perlando Baroa or even a Bryce Miller if you want to toss them into the bullpen, Brian Wood, someone like that. Or go out on the trade market and find a guy that can pitch at the back of the game in those tough spots in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning with Paul Seawald and Andres Munoz. I think they're short that guy. I think they're better off using Matt Brash, at least right now, the same way they did last year. Sometimes be the bridge. Sometimes let Brash be the bridge and kind of have that high leverage spot in the middle of the game when the pitcher struggles in a tough spot, get him out of a jam because he has the strikeout pitch. That might be the best role for Matt Brash, instead of waiting and using him when the game is on the line after the, after the sixth inning, they're going to need a guy. And, and I really think probably the best bet is to go outside the organization and go trade for it in July. But those are the two things. Yeah, they, they need to get more from their current group, including Matt Brash. Paul Seawald needs to get a little bit more consistent. They obviously need to get Andres Munoz back. But I think they're an arm short back there. And that's the one thing that I'm looking at as we, uh, as we get a little further down the spring and closer to summer how this team figures out not just the bullpen roles, but do we have enough in the system, in the organization, including at the big league level right now, Justin Topas thrown the ball pretty well, but is Trevor got a guy you want giving seventh and eighth innings to? Uh, not for me. I want to go out and get someone else that's done that before. couple more segments to get to on extra innings. We've got a round of pepper taking a look at some of the biggest headlines in baseball, but up next, Kyle Glazer of Baseball America. We talk Jared Kelnick's blistering start to the season, some Mariners prospects. We also get into the A's potential relocation and just what that might mean for the future of the AL West here in Seattle and also across, you know, you've got Houston, L.A., you've got Texas, what what it means for those teams as well. Kyle Glazer, Baseball America, joins me. Coming up next here on Extra Innings, don't go anywhere. This is the Mariners Radio Network. You're listening to Extra Innings inside the Mariners on the home of the Mariners, Seattle Sports. We're back on Extra Innings here on Seattle Sports and the Mariners Radio Network. And joining me on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, he writes for Baseball America. It's Kyle Glazer joining me. And Kyle, really appreciate it. How's it going tonight? Doing all right. Thanks for having me. No, no problem. Kyle, uh, the big story in baseball right now, at least here in the American League West, is the pending relocation of the Oakland A's. And uh, you wrote a great column in Baseball America this week uh, talking about team relocations. And here in Seattle, obviously, we're no strangers to that, having lost having lost the Sonics 15 years ago. Uh, just want to get your, your thoughts on this. And, I mean, you obviously touched on it in your column, but, I mean, just seeing how this played out, not just – recently but over the last couple decades it was just so ugly between the city of Oakland and the A's and and how their fans got caught up in the middle of it Uh, just what was your initial reaction when you saw the news the other day that the A's in Vegas had had come to an agreement it wasn't terribly surprising I think anyone reading the tea leaves could see this is where it was going obviously the A's and the city of Oakland and the greater East Bay have had a lot of negotiations over the years to try and get a new stadium. We've heard all about over the years San Jose and Fremont and 
Howard Terminal and Jack London Square and Laney College, all these potential sites. They weren't able to come to an agreement on all of them. And we really saw over the last two, three years in particular, post-pandemic, just a very, very transparent attempt by A's ownership to make things as bad as possible at the Coliseum, both on and off the field, to really try and leverage a new stadium, whether that was in Oakland or elsewhere, and make the situation appear even more dire than it was. Now, with a potential stadium deal locked up here with the city of Vegas, people now wonder, do you think the A's will increase their spending now that they have got this hurdle out of the way? But seeing how this ownership group has had plenty of opportunities to do so uh, you know, ever since taking over, and they have chosen not to, do you think we'll start to see the A's once they do get to Vegas, You know, pending that approval and pending all that for Major League Baseball, do you think this will finally sort of unleash their pocketbooks? Well, keep in mind there's still a lot of steps that have to happen between this and actually physically moving to Las Vegas. There's still a lot of legal and legislative and financial hurdles that have to be crossed, so this is just a first step. But if all of those go according to plan, at least as far as the A's hope, and they do get to Las Vegas – You know, we've seen teams do this a lot, promise, oh, once we get a new stadium, we'll start spending more and everything will be better. And in reality, when it's the same owner in charge, nothing really changes, at least in terms of the long term. We saw this with the Marlins, for example. They kept talking about, we need a new stadium, we need a new stadium. They got into a new stadium, they spent a bunch of money the first year or two, and then immediately went back to their penny-pinching ways. Uh, You can go back to the Padres when they moved into Petco Park in 2004. They ramped up spending a little bit the first couple years. Then their owner got divorced, and they last payroll and got down to like the $40 million range. It was really ugly. It was only after a new owner came in, Peter Seidler, after it was really a third owner after they initially sold to Jeff Morad, that spending actually changed. Generally speaking, if the owner doesn't change, the payroll spending habits won't change. And even if the owner changes sometimes, it still doesn't make a difference, as we see with the Marlins and Bruce Sherman. So it really comes down, it's more about the owner than the ballpark. Kyle Glazer of Baseball America joining us on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Outline here on Extra Innings. And and Kyle, in the AL West, you had a big promotion uh, earlier uh, last week, Zach Neto of the Angels gets promoted, the first of the class of 2022 to reach the big leagues. Uh, who are some other names in the American League West that you see contributing at the big league level, uh, maybe in the in the coming weeks, the coming months? Because here in Seattle, it feels like there's a couple guys knocking on the door, at least at the Double A level: Bryce Miller, Brian Wu, uh, you know, Cade Marlowe at Triple A. Do you see any other names over the next couple of weeks, kind of factoring into how this AL West is going to shake out? Obviously, this is going to depend on injuries a little bit, but I do look at some of the arms the Mariners have in their farm system. Um, Everson Hancock, Bryce Miller, you know, those are two pitchers who, you know, have a chance to help the Mariners in some form or fashion exactly what the role is. Again, that's going to depend a little bit on how they're throwing and also what's happening ahead of them. Um, You know, you mentioned Brian, where he's got a really good arm. Uh, He needs to build up a little bit innings-wise, but... I'm really looking at those Mariners' arms. Like I said, Miller and Hancock, those are the two guys where, again, depending on what happens in front of them, you can see a scenario where they play at least a somewhat major role in the Mariners' postseason hopes as we move deeper into the season. Sticking with uh, the Mariners, 
Harry Ford had a tremendous World Baseball Classic performance going yard a couple times for Great Britain. Did that performance do anything to maybe shoot him up some prospect rankings or grab the attention of, of those covering minor league ball? Because it felt like over the last couple of years, people were like, oh, what? this guy's got tremendous amounts of potential. We saw it on display in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, has, has any narrative around him changed after that performance? Not really. He was the Mariners' number one prospect and a top 100 prospect before the World Baseball Classic. Him going out and performing like that kind of reinforced, hey, this is why this guy is the number one prospect. This is why this guy is a top 100 prospect. Didn't really change anything as much as showed, yeah, this is the talent he has on a grander stage. Anyone who watched him at Modesto last year, as, as I did and others of us did at Baseball America, could see what he was capable of once he got healthy. And so this was just more of a continuation of that rather than anything new. Kyle, one of the biggest stories with this Mariners season over the first month has been Jared Kelnick's uh, bursting onto the scene after two years of, of really nothing at the major league level, or less than nothing, really. He was a negative contributor both times up. This year, he has been tremendous over the first 22 games, uh, leading the team in war, leading the team in OPS, home runs. I mean, he has been everything that we all kind of thought he would be when he was initially called up. What are you seeing from him this year that uh, we just haven't seen from him before at the major league level? Better swing, better approach, more confident up there. I mean, I think a lot of times, especially now with how many eyes are on prospects, people kind of freak out or get nervous when guys come up and struggle. Look, there's a lot of young big leaguers right now who are top prospects who maybe came up and struggled a little bit, and now here in their third or fourth stints are starting to figure it out. You look at Brandon March, who leads the majors in OPS. You look at Nolan Gorman with the Cardinals. Jared Kelnick falls into this group. There's a long list of guys that I wrote about this in the offseason who struggled their first two, three, four, even five stints in the majors before figuring it out. Um, obviously, it's a long season. We have to see if Jared Kelnick can keep it up, but so far, so good. And, and this is sort of what you knew he was capable of if he could just make some changes and adjustments to uh, the level of competition. Yeah, Kelnick has been uh, just an absolute blast to watch on a daily basis here, and especially because he wasn't going to get at-bats to start the season against lefties, and now I mean, he's really spraying the ball over the field. Most of his home runs have gone either to straightaway center or, or opposite field to left field. Uh, it's just been a, a treat to watch every single day here in Seattle, seeing Kelnick uh, get off to the start that he's off to. We're joined by Kyle Glazer of Baseball America here on Extra Innings. And, and Kyle, another prospect that I think here in the American League West people have kind of been waiting on, uh, very similar to the start that Jared Kelnick has gotten off to in his career is Joe Adele down uh, with the Angels. He's gotten off to a huge start at the AAA level. Do you think there's still something in there for him to tap into at the major league level yeah i mean again this is another really young player who was rushed to the majors before he was ready and it really set him back um we've seen him put up big numbers at triple a before and struggle to have those translate in the major leagues i think anytime you're talking about someone with this much talent and also you know such good makeup he's tremendously smart he's an incredibly hard worker everyone who knows joe adele loves him and, and talks about him in, in glowing terms. I think it'd be foolish to bet against a guy like that just because he's 24 and it hasn't clicked in the majors yet. Um, at the same time, you know, we need to see it translate. He's had a few opportunities. He hasn't really made strides against the caliber of pitching he's going to see in the big leagues. So, 
you want to see him make those adjustments before you fully commit to anything. But again, I think dismissing a guy, you know, this young, this physically gifted with all the right makeup markers would be a mistake. Kyle Glazer joining us here on Extra Innings. And Kyle, uh, it's never too early to uh, get into some draft talk, at least uh, talking about some players that the Mariners uh, may be picking in the first round. They have, what, three picks in the first round this year based off of uh, Julio Rodriguez's Rookie of the Year season and then also where they finish in the standings. Uh, Who are some names to watch out for at the end of the first round where the Mariners might be picking? Yeah, those are still kind of coming into focus here. There's still a lot of time left in the college and high school season. So um, pegging exactly what guy is number 27 or 28 or 31 is a little tough. I will say in general, uh, there's a lot of really good high school shortstops in this class that are sort of sneaking their way up into the back of the first round. Uh, Arjun Damala is a kid in Florida who's doing some good things. Uh, Walker Martin is a high school shortstop in Colorado. Uh, you have a guy named Eric Batanti in Southern California who's probably more of a third baseman. Well, I should say definitely more of a third baseman. But, um, again, just kind of these high school shortstops seem to be really rising, and we see a lot of those guys end up getting picked in the 20 to 30 range of the first round. So I would say that's the general demographic that's kind of moving in there. But again, there's a long way between now and the draft in July, and so many names are going to come up and move down in that time. It'd be uh, beyond premature to peg them to any one, two, or three players. Well, we'll keep our eye out for for those guys that you mentioned, and uh, should be a very interesting uh, summer for Mariners fans as they look to uh, get back to the top of Baseball America's organizational rankings where they were uh, at one point last year. Kyle Glazer, kind enough to join us here on Extra Innings. Follow him at Kyle A. Glazer and read his work at Baseball America. Kyle, really appreciate you stopping by here on this Monday. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Last little bit to get to on Extra Innings is right around the break, including Vlad Guerrero Jr. with some choice words for the New York Yankees. We'll get into that, as well as Commissioner Rob Manfred's comments about the A's potential relocation to Las Vegas. Still plenty to get to with a round of pepper as we close out Extra Innings around the break. Curtis Rogers with you on Extra Innings here on Seattle Sports and the Mariners Radio Network. You're listening to Extra Innings, Inside the Mariners, on the home of the Mariners, Seattle Sports. Thank you so much for making Extra Innings a part of your Monday night. We'll be back with you, I believe, a week from today, the next time the Mariners have a day off. A lot of good Mariners action coming your way over the course of this week. Also, we got NFL draft coverage, too, here on Seattle Sports Station, so you don't want to miss any of that. But... Before we get into the rest of our week, we got to finish up here on Monday night. Take a look at some of the biggest headlines in Major League Baseball over the last few days. And Vlad Guerrero Jr. with some interesting comments over the offseason in an in an interview he did, I believe it was with ESPN Deportes, uh, talked about how he would never ever play for the Yankees, and his quote was not even dead. Like he he is adamant about never ever playing for the Yankees and. Uh, ben Nicholson Smith, who reports for the Blue Jays uh, on Sportsnet up in Canada, said that Vlad Guerrero Jr. ahead of their series against the Yankees doubled down, saying he has personal and family reasons for preferring not to play for the Yankees and would never change his mind. It reminds me of Ken Griffey Jr.'s hatred of the Yankees and how he said he would never ever play for them uh, following his dad's stint with the team 
back in, I believe it was the early 80s. And, you know, I wonder if there are other players out there in baseball that kind of share that sentiment. And it's interesting that in both of these instances, it is the son of a Hall of Fame player, Vlad Guerrero Jr., obviously, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, or son of a, a player that has, you know, had a very successful career in the big leagues, Vlad Guerrero and Vlad Guerrero Sr., Ken Griffey and Ken Griffey Sr. Uh, I don't know if there's any bad blood that I'm aware of of Vlad Guerrero Sr. with the Yankees, but maybe, you know, when Vlad Guerrero Sr. was a, uh, a free agent back in the day after he left Montreal, maybe the Yankees were in pursuit of him. Something may have happened, but look, I, I I commend Vlad Guerrero Jr. for sticking to his guns there and telling the Yankees not in a million years. Respect to him. Anybody that's against the Yankees, I'm all for. Even if Vlad Guerrero Jr. is like one of the very best players in baseball, and you know the Mariners, uh, he could be giving up some. He hits the Mariners pretty good, I, I would say. Uh, also in Major League Baseball, we just talked about it with Kyle Glazer, but the A's uh, and their continued heavy flirtations with the city of Las Vegas. It feels like it's almost a foregone conclusion that they're uh, going to be on their way to Vegas within the next couple of years. Commissioner Rob Manfred speaking today about the A's agreement with the city of Vegas. Uh, Manfred had this to say. Now, try and not barf after you hear this. It says, uh, Manfred, quote, I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I really do. But for the city of Oakland to point fingers at A's team owner John Fisher, it's not fair. We have shown an unbelievable commitment to the fans in Oakland by exhausting every possible opportunity to try to get something done in Oakland. Unfortunately, the government doesn't seem to have the will to get it done, end quote. Yeah, that's that's not entirely true, Commissioner Manfred. You see, John Fisher poisoned the well so much in Oakland that the city of Oakland was like, fine, good riddance, we don't want you anymore. Uh, the A's ownership situation, I mean, it gets often overlooked in the world of sports because... As far as I know, we don't we haven't heard anything, you know, just gross coming from the organization the way we do from like the Washington Commanders with Dan Snyder and you know, the Phoenix Suns with Robert Sarver and you know the Clippers with Donald Sterling all those years ago. Uh, but the A's are clearly the A's ownership are clearly looking for the most profitable thing uh, that they can do here, and moving to Vegas appears to be that at least in their mind. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a step up because the Oakland TV market is bigger than what it is in Vegas. Uh, You've got a huge just population area in the Bay Area, whereas Las Vegas, outside of that city in the state of Nevada, it's like Henderson, and that's about it. There is hardly anybody coming to Vegas that is a local. Now, you're going to get a lot of... You're going to get a lot of opposing fans traveling to your city, that's for sure, uh, because... As we know, Vegas is one of the biggest tourist destinations in the United States. But this whole agreement that the A's have with Las Vegas just seems so not well thought out at all. And it just seems like the A's are running from Oakland because they didn't want to fork over more money than they were willing to, even though they could clearly afford it, even though they could clearly make something happen in Oakland. I mean... They've spent more time in Oakland than they've spent anywhere in their entire city's or their entire franchise's existence. So, I mean, just an awful, awful situation. And get this, too. 
uh, Manfred also added that it would be feasible for the A's to share a stadium with their AAA affiliate Las Vegas Aviators until their new stadium is built. Now, Jeff Passan of ESPN wrote late last week that the A's new stadium in Vegas were it to be built would not be completed until about 2027 at the earliest. That's four years from now. That's four seasons from now. The A's current stadium lease expires next season in 2024. So after 2024, they're going to have to find a new home outside of the Oakland Coliseum. We're talking about a 10,000-seat AAA stadium. Now, the Las Vegas AAA stadium, the Las Vegas ballpark is what it's called, is beautiful for a minor league stadium. It is truly it is a gorgeous ballpark for a minor league team. It seats 10,000 people. Uh, it is clearly not, in, not up to snuff in terms of uh, capacity at that ballpark. I would be embarrassed if I were an A's fan. I mean, look, I don't think the A's fans are, are going to be traveling to Vegas the way that Raiders fans have when they departed Oakland for the city of Vegas. But you're really going to you're really going to put a Major League Baseball team in a Triple A ballpark for three seasons, potentially three seasons. This plan just never it, it has not appeared to be thought out uh, well at all. Now, I will say 10,000 seats on average will get you a higher attendance figure than I think what we have seen in the Coliseum over the years. Now, thats I'm not painting that as the fault of A's fans, that's for sure. I mean, look, we know what it's like here in Seattle to lose a team. People always point to the attendance figures in Seattle the final year that the Sonics were in town and say, oh, look, they didn't want to support their team at all. And it's like, well... It was a foregone conclusion that they were going to be leaving, or at least it was a very likely thing that they were going to be leaving. Of course people aren't going to show up to the ballpark. Of course people aren't going to put their hard-earned money in the pockets of owners that want to take teams away from their city. Like, you've got to be kidding me with that. Like, that is just not possible. That is not something that should be put into question here as to why A's fans aren't showing up to games right now. Of course you wouldn't want to show up to a stadium that is a dump. Like, you've got a possum infestation. I'm dead serious about this. There's a possum infestation in the visiting radio booth at the Oakland Coliseum. Like, they can't get that figured out. They can't get the plumbing figured out. They have been in this decrepit, rundown stadium for, it feels like, my entire lifetime. Uh, It it is just a, a disastrous situation for the A's and their fans. Let's have a little bit of light humor here on extra innings. The Dodgers currently have four players on the paternity list for Mookie Betts, Evan Phillips, Evan Phillips, Bruce Dark Gratterall, and Max Muncy. Uh, just nine months ago, that would put us at about the all-star break from last year, just doing some simple math. So uh, just enjoying that time off from the game. <laughs> And how about this crazy stat line we saw from Adelise Garcia back on Saturday in the Rangers' 18-3 thrashing of the aforementioned Oakland A's. One of the best stat lines you may ever see. And it reminds me of when Sean Green had a four-home run game. He went 6-for-6 that day with four home runs and two, two doubles in that game. Well, this Garcia stat line, the Rangers outfielder, 
uh, very close to what we saw from Sean Green that day. He went five for six uh, with or five for six, three home runs, two doubles, and eight runs batted in that day. Or actually, it was five for five that day. Five for five, three home runs, two doubles, eight runs batted in, got hit by a pitch. What? Like, that is an absurd stat line. You're never going to have a better day with the bat in your hand. Like, you can't even do that on MLB The Show. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. And I'm sure they're going to have an unlockable moment this week. Uh, Try to replicate what Adelise Garcia did, at least in terms of total bases. Uh, But total bases for that game, what? You had three home runs, so that's 12. Two doubles, that is... Jeez. You had, what, like 16 total bases that day? An absurd day. Absurd day for one guy. Shout out to him for having the day of his life uh, on Saturday. That is going to do it for us here on Mariners Extra Innings. Really appreciate you stopping by. If you missed any part of tonight's show, we've got interviews with Brandon Gustin of Seattle Sports, Matt Gelb of The Athletic, who covers the Phillies, Kyle Glazer, of the of baseball America, you have got one place to go to, and that's SeattleSports.com. If you missed any part of today's show, actually two part two places you can go to. You can also download the Seattle Sports app and stream every hour of every show available at your fingertips. Really appreciate you joining us here on this Monday evening. Mariners take on the Phillies tomorrow, 3.40 first pitch, 2.30 pregame show coming your way. I'm Curtis Rogers. Really appreciate you stopping by. This has been Extra Innings on Seattle Sports and the Mariners Radio Network.